An old man traveling a lone highway came at the evening cold and gray to a chasm vast and deep and wide through which was flowing a sullen tide. The old man crossed in the twilight dim. The sullen stream held no fear for him. But he turned when he had reached the other side and he built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, said a fellow pilgrim near, why waste your strength in building here? Your journey will end with the ending day. You never again must pass this way. You've crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build you this bridge in the eventide? The old man lifted his gray head. And he said, good friend, in the path I've come, he said, there followeth after me today youth whose feet must cross this way. This chasm that has been not to me, to that fair-haired youth, may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I am building the bridge for him. You could say that there are two types of people in the world today. There are those who build bridges, and there are those who burn them. I want to ask you this morning, church, what kind of person are you? Are you a bridge builder or are you a bridge burner? I'm calling today's message bridge builder or bridge burner from John chapter 8. So make sure you have your Bibles handy. We're in John chapter 8. We'll be starting in verse 1. Over the years, this passage has been a big encouragement to me, and it's helped me understand God's purpose and plan for my life. And I think it'll help you understand God's purpose and plan for you as well. So we're in John chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Say amen if you're there. Amen. Here we go. Starting in verse 1. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. May God bless us as we read and study and most importantly apply his word to our lives today. You might have noticed in your Bible a note above John chapter 8 that reads something like this. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 through chapter 8 verse 11. So, what on earth does that mean? Good question. 
Well, let me uh, tackle for just a few moments that question before we take a closer look at the passage. As you probably know, John's original manuscript of the book of John is not sitting in the Smithsonian somewhere. The original writings of the New Testament, the actual original documents of each of those 27 books, we don't have. What we have are copies of the originals. And we have copies, thousands of them. Some have counted over 20,000 copies of different parts of the New Testament that were accumulated over the first 900 years of Christianity. And so when we look at the book of John, from what I've been told, uh, we have some 900 early copies of this account in John chapter 8. But the difficulty is those copies of this account are several hundred years removed from the original writing, more like 300 to 350 years removed. We prefer to go with documents that are as close to the original writing as possible. Some parts of the New Testament, we have copies that date as close as 150 years removed from the original writing. Now, that to you may seem like a long time, but actually the New Testament is unparalleled in the, in the biblical and document evidence we have to support its accuracy. If you look at other ancient documents, for instance, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey that some of you may have had to read uh, during your high school years, uh, those earliest documents of the Iliad and the Odyssey are some 1,000 years removed from the original writing. And so the New Testament is unparalleled. 150 years for an ancient document is very, very close to the original writing. And so when Bible scholars have looked at the earliest documents, those within 150 to 200 years of John's original writing, they don't see this account in John chapter 8. And so we ask a couple questions. Did John write this account about the woman caught in adultery? Most likely the answer is no. Most likely John didn't write this. And so the second natural question, did the event actually happen? Most Bible scholars are unanimous on this. Absolutely. It's an authentic account. But the early uh, composers uh, of the, the scriptural books, or how I should say, the early church fathers who assembled the early writings to form the New Testament, didn't know whether to put this in John or Luke. They knew it was an accurate account. But they chose to put it in John chapter 8 because they felt that that fit the time period the best. So did John write it? Most likely not. Is it an authentic story of what Jesus actually did? Yes. And should we view it as scripture? Absolutely. So with that, let's dive into John chapter 8. Look at verse 2 again. It says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Well, even after receiving criticism and false accusations just one chapter earlier in chapter 7, Jesus still returned to the temple courts to teach the people. Even when the critics were assembling and just relentless in coming after Jesus and trying to accuse Jesus, he still did what God called him to do. He didn't cower under pressure. He comes back and he teaches the people the next day. So Jesus is there in the temple courts. He's teaching the people. And at some point during his teaching, he's interrupted by the teachers of the law and some Pharisees. Look at verses 3 through 5. It says, They bring to Jesus a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. 
they force her to stand in front of the group of people Jesus is teaching. And they say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Uh, They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, there's some things about this whole situation with this woman being brought to Jesus. There are things about it that just don't pass the smell test. Uh, There's some things that just smell really, really fishy about it. Let me give you uh, three quick examples. Number one, the timing of the catching of this woman in the act of adultery is too perfect to be a coincidence. It was just in that prior chapter that these Pharisees and teachers of the law are trying to come up with some way to accuse Jesus of something because they couldn't stand the guy. They couldn't stand him. They wanted to get him out of their hair. They wanted him to stop teaching. They wanted him to stop drawing a crowd. They wanted him in jail. And so they're looking for an accusation. The timing here is too perfect to be a coincidence. And so it seems clear, and it even uh, verifies this right here in the text, that they're using this woman as a snare to try to trap Jesus into saying something stupid, something he will say that will ruin his reputation and ideally get him arrested. The timing can't be a coincidence. Second thing I notice, something that smells a little fishy, they catch the woman in the act of adultery, but there's no mention of the man. Where's the man? For a woman to be caught in the act of adultery, there had to be someone committing adultery with her, and he's nowhere to be found. So, in all likelihood, it seems like the Pharisees and teachers of the law paid the guy off because they just needed the woman as a trap. They didn't do the, want to do the right thing and bring both and give them both equal charges for what they had done. And then the third thing I noticed that doesn't pass the smell test, the Pharisees asked Jesus a lose-lose question. They realized that there was no possible way for Jesus to answer this question correctly. So they knew that if Jesus said they shouldn't stone the woman, that they could authorize the temple guards to arrest Jesus because Jesus would be advocating doing something that was directly against the Old Testament Jewish law. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 22 through 24, it says this, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, Both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. You shall take both of them to the gate of the town and stone them to death. It's pretty clear, don't you think? So the law of Moses was very, very clear in the Jewish community that the punishment for adultery was capital punishment and the preferred method of capital punishment for someone committing adultery was to be stoned to death. So if Jesus says no to stoning this woman, Jesus would be accused of advocating rebellion against the Old Testament Jewish law. And those Pharisees and teachers of the law would call in the temple guards and say, arrest this man. Because he's advocating right here in God's holy temple that we break the holy Old Testament law. Well, on the other hand, if Jesus were to say the woman should be stoned, they had Jesus... Up against a barrel there as well, because if they said that if Jesus said she should be stoned, 
They would go grab the Roman guards and have the Romans arrest Jesus because the Romans were an occupying force there in Israel in Jesus' day. And they made it very clear, the Romans did, that if the Jews wanted to kill someone and carry out a capital punishment sentence on someone, they had to get Roman permission. They didn't have authority to carry out capital punishment on their own. So all they would have to do is go find Governor Pilate or go find some uh, centurion or some Roman soldiers and say, hey, this teacher here is drawing this crowd and he's advocating stoning this woman to death. Isn't that against Roman law? Well, so one way or another, no matter how Jesus answered this question, they had him trapped. Or so they thought. Instead of answering the Pharisees' question right away, Jesus does something unexpected in verse 6. He bends down and he starts writing on the ground with his finger. That's a bit odd, don't you think? He's just scribbling in the dirt. Can you imagine if you were to come over to the church office this week and say, you know, Pastor, I'm going through a tough time. I, I need you to pray with me. And you, you decide you trust me enough to bear your soul and share with me some of the, the specifics of how you need prayer. And so it looks like I'm listening intently. But as soon as you finish sharing your prayer request with me, I, I start bending down and just scribbling on the carpet in front of you. And this goes on for half a minute, a minute, two minutes, three minutes. You'd think I'd lost my mind, wouldn't you? Imagine if you went in for a job interview and the interviewer is sitting there at his desk and he asks you a question. Now, tell me about yourself. And instead of answering the question, you just bend down and start scribbling uh, on the tile in that guy's office. The guy would think you're nuts. What are the chances you'd get that job? Uh, Slim to none, right? People would think we're crazy. People would think, at the very least, we're really rude if we don't answer the question but just start scribbling in the dirt. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. It's exactly what he does. He doesn't answer their question right away. Instead, he squats down and starts scribbling in the dirt with his finger. Well, they wait a minute or two. They start peppering him with some more questions, and he's just still scribbling away. Jesus, what's your answer? Should we stone her or not? Come on, Jesus. Cat got your tongue? Give us an answer. You scared to give us an answer, Jesus? And they start peppering him with more and more questions. Verse 7 tells us that when they kept on questioning him, Jesus straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. Verse 8. Again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. So what on earth? Was Jesus riding in the dirt that day? That was the million dollar question for anyone who's read this passage over the past 2,000 years. What was Jesus riding in the dirt? The passage doesn't tell us. Nowhere in scripture does it tell us what Jesus was riding in the dirt that day. So different Christians have had all sorts of ideas. We've wondered, was he just doodling, playing (laughs) tic-tac-toe? Was he setting up a game of hangman? Just passing the time? Just waiting for that perfect moment to answer? Or was he writing something that tied into what he was about to teach the people that day? The best explanation I've ever heard, the one I think is closest to what Jesus actually did, goes like this. Jesus is asked that question. In the law, Moses says we should stone such a woman. Now what do you say? Jesus bends down the first time 
and begins writing in the dirt the names of the accusers who were standing right before him, maybe even with rocks in hand. And he starts writing down names, maybe Zechariah and Thaddeus and Micah and, and Levi and David. He's, he's writing down the names of the accusers, those Pharisees and teachers of the law who are standing and condemning this woman. And they begin peppering him up more and more and more questions. And then Jesus straightens up and he says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And so after having seen their names in the dirt, then Jesus bends down a second time and with his finger begins next to each accuser's name, writing a sin that Jesus as the all-knowing son of God knew that each had committed. Maybe he wrote adultery next to Thaddeus's name. Maybe he wrote something like fornication or stealing or lust next to Levi's name. Each of those accusers, he writes a sin next to their name. And one by one, starting with the oldest, they drop the rocks out of their hands. They turn and they walk away. They did it partly because of embarrassment, but I would hope they did it partly because of the conviction of God on their hearts that they were guilty. You see, as Jewish teachers, they understood well that God had a little caveat to stoning an adulterer in the Old Testament. If someone was going to be a victim of, of capital punishment, if they were going to be punished by the death penalty, by the community, the first person to throw the stone at that person who was found guilty of a capital offense, that person who threw the first stone could not be a person who had committed that same sin at some point in his or her life. That person had to be innocent of that particular sin. The Jewish community would never have a murderer be the first to throw a stone at someone who's being killed because of murder. And the Jewish community would never choose an adulterer to throw the first stone at another adulterer. That person had to be innocent of that crime. So when Jesus says, let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her, everyone in that crowd knew full well, even if they had not committed that sin that that woman had committed, they were just as guilty of sinning against a holy God. The Jewish leaders, according to verse 9, began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now it's just Jesus and the woman. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And I'm sure with tears rolling down her cheeks and her voice trembling, she said, no one, sir. And Jesus finishes this passage by saying, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus was the only one in the crowd that day who had the right to pick up a stone and kill that woman for what she had done because he was the only one in the crowd who was innocent. He was the only one in the crowd that wasn't guilty of any capital offense. Yet he said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You've probably heard it said that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. This account here in John chapter 8, I think, illustrates this truth so beautifully. 
powerfully. Jesus builds a bridge of mercy and compassion to this woman who doesn't deserve it. Why? Because he loved her. He cared about her. He was her creator. He didn't want to see this woman die hopeless in her sin and experience the hopelessness of being separated from God for all eternity. But in that love, notice that Jesus doesn't ignore her sin. He doesn't overlook her adultery. He tells her, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus demonstrates the perfect balance between compassion and speaking the truth. Usually we focus on one or the other. Christians usually lean one direction. Either we have so much compassion that we keep our mouths shut and don't point out when someone is sinning and killing themselves by that sin. And so that person continues in their stupidity because no Christian has cared enough for them to tell them the truth. Or we lean to the other side of the the pendulum and, and we speak the truth without a shred of love in it. Some Christians tell it like it is, and they pride themselves in telling like it is, but there's no compassion, there's no mercy, there's no kindness. They drop the bombshell on someone about how stupid they are and walk away and don't lift a finger to help them. That's not good either. Jesus has the perfect balance between compassion and speaking the truth that we need to hear so we don't incur judgment. Well, in John 1.17... Remember what John said about Jesus. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here in John chapter 8, Jesus has shown us the perfect balance between grace and truth, between mercy and justice. He turns to this broken woman and speaks the truth in love. Jesus built a bridge of grace to her. And it was also a bridge of truth that this broken woman who was lost and dying without God desperately needed. And Jesus has called you and me to build those same kinds of bridges to our family and friends today. In John chapter 3, if you were to go back and look earlier in this book of John, in chapter 3 you'd see Jesus building a bridge to a a Jewish leader named Nicodemus who was uh, one that knew religion but didn't know God. When's the last time that you shared Christ with someone who had a lot of religion but truly didn't know God? In John chapter 4, Jesus builds a bridge to a Samaritan woman who was a five-time divorcee who was living with her boyfriend while still married. When's the last time you reached out to someone who was a moral mess and helped lead them to church with you? When's the last time you brought someone to this online service who you know needs the church and needs the Word of God, someone who's a moral mess. Maybe God's calling you today to reach out to someone who's on your mind right now, who's a moral mess and needs that invitation to hear the Word of God through one of these online services. In John chapter 5, Jesus built a, a bridge to a man who had been crippled for 38 years and felt like he didn't have a friend in the world. When's the last time you reached out to someone who felt like they didn't have a friend in the world and you offered them friendship, you offered them kindness, you offered them compassion, and you shared the good news of Christ with them? Jesus was a bridge builder. So if you and I are serious about following Jesus Christ, we need to put down our matches and our lighter fluid and start building bridges instead of burning them. In Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus says that he came to seek and to save what was lost. 
Bottom line, Jesus came to earth to build bridges to sinners and save them. He built bridges to fishermen. He built bridges to lepers. He built bridges to prostitutes. He built bridges to tax collectors. He built bridges to people who were demon-possessed. He built bridges to those who were sick and hurting and hopeless. And thank God, He built a bridge to you and He built a bridge to me. Amen? Aren't you grateful that He built a bridge to you? Not that you deserved it. Not that I was worthy of it. We certainly weren't. But he built a bridge because he loves us. So I ask you again, are you a a bridge builder or are you a bridge burner? As I shared with you this past Sunday, 2020 has been a test. More specifically, for most of us, it's been a pop quiz, not a final exam. It's been a pop quiz given to us by God to prepare us for tougher tests that are coming up ahead. And honestly, many Christians across our country haven't been uh, doing very well on this 2020 exam. We haven't been doing very well, many of us, on this pop quiz, especially in regard to building bridges to people who desperately need God. Many Christians have very strong opinions about covid You've probably noticed, right? (laughs) Many Christians have very strong opinions about COVID. And at times this year, we've burnt bridges with friends and family who believe differently. Many Christians have very strong opinions about recent police shootings and the unrest that's been going on in many of our cities across the nation. And many of us, at times, have lambasted anyone around us who dared to have a different opinion than me. Many Christians, certainly you've noticed this, have very strong opinions when it comes to politics. And so this has been a very angry and divisive presidential election year. And many Christians, well-meaning as they may have been, have burned a lot of bridges with family and friends who held different political opinions than they did. We have to be careful. It's easy to forget that the clock is quickly ticking. We don't have much time to reach out to those who are lost and dying without Jesus Christ. With every passing day, we are one day closer to Christ's return. With every passing day, we are one day closer to each of us dying. With every day that passes by, we have one less day to reach someone who is lost and dying without Christ. It was less than two weeks ago that I did a funeral for a 19-year-old young man who had steeped during COVID into a pit of depression and took his own life. And so there I was in that funeral chapel with a family in tears devastated by the loss of their 19-year-old. It was just a week after that, this past Wednesday, that I officiated another service. This one was for a 24-year-old young woman who died on her 24th birthday tragically at the hands of her murderer. What a tragedy for that family. These, These last two services that I've done have been once again reminding me that life is short. Just because we're young doesn't mean that we're guaranteed next year or 10 more years or 20 more years. Just because your your spouse or your children or your grandchildren seem so young and it seems like they have so much life ahead of them, we never know for sure. And so God has called us to reach out to them in love and build bridges to those 
who need Christ. As most of you know, in January, I gave our church a challenge. I gave our church a challenge to work together to lead 50 people to Christ in the year 2020. I asked you to do three things to participate in this challenge. Number one, I asked you to pray every day for 50 salvations in 2020. I hope you've been doing that. Number two, I asked you to not just invite, but bring at least one new person to church with you every month. If you're joining us consistently online, you could bring them online. That counts. But one new person, bring them with you to church every month. And then number three, I asked you to lead one person to Christ personally this year. That's been the challenge. To pray every day for 50 salvations, to bring someone to church every month, and to personally lead one person to Christ this year. Well, here we are with six weeks left in the year. And we have had 13 baptisms. We've had 13 people come to Christ. Not 50, 13. So that leads me to believe that most of us have not been carrying out this challenge. We've had 13 decisions for Christ. Our attendance online and in person hasn't doubled or tripled. And so it seems like most of us aren't bringing that one new person to church with us each month. And I want to give you a challenge, a refreshed, renewed challenge here with six weeks left in the year. Can you take this 2020 challenge and run with it with me in the next six weeks? Can you take this challenge? Can you begin between now and the end of December praying every single day that God would bless us with all 50 of those decisions for Christ by the end of 2020? What a wonderful way that would be to end the year. Will you join me in inviting at least and bringing one person with you to church in November and one more in December? Two more people between now and the end of the year. And finally, will you be bold enough to reach out to that person that God has laid on your heart today and share the good news of Jesus Christ with them and lead them to Christ? Some of you might be saying, I don't know how to do that. I've never led anyone to Christ. Well, I've got great news for you. You have a church family and a pastor, and we are here to help. If you have someone you want to share Christ with, and you'd like me to personally help with that, you just say the word. And I want to be there, if at all possible, to help you lead someone to Christ. Can we do this, church? Can we each make this challenge and take this challenge to see 50 people by the end of this year give their hearts to Christ through the ministry of Impact Christian Church? Maybe you're listening to this broadcast today, and you're one of them. You know that you've been dragging your feet and you need to accept Christ. Would you reach out right now to one of our prayer counselors? Their names and phone numbers are going to be at the bottom of the screen. Would you reach out to them and let them know, I'm ready to accept Jesus Christ. Oh, church, God has called us not to be bridge burners, but to be bridge builders. Maybe you've burnt some bridges this year. God can help you rebuild them. Let's reach out to family to friends, to co-workers, to neighbors. Build bridges to them and connect them to Jesus Christ so they can experience the hope and the peace and the joy that we all can through Christ. Let's do this together. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name thanking you for the blessing of being able to do what you have done. Help us to follow in your footsteps, Lord Jesus, and lead people to Christ. Help us to build bridges to those who are 
who are ostracized, Lord, those who are criticized, those who are the outcasts in our society. Help us to build bridges to those who are atheists, those who are agnostic, those, Lord, who are, are steeped in religion but don't know God. Help us, Lord, to reach out to them and build bridges between them and Christ. Oh, Lord, there are those that come after us. We don't build these bridge, bridges for ourselves, Lord. We build them for others to connect them to Christ. Help us to be like Christ and seek and save the lost. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to shift over. I'm going to do a song this may.